Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com hey before we get started i just want to say that in talking about the coronavirus things change really quickly in this episode i comment about the ways that chinese folks have been treating foreigners and i give my personal account i say that in general people have been treating me really well i recorded this before the recent revelations about what's happening to african expats in guangzhou so my reflections may seem a bit tone deaf? Over the past week in Guangzhou, xenophobic tensions have flared, and African expats have faced evictions from their homes, apparently over fears of the coronavirus. I'm following this story closely, and I want to do an episode on this topic for next season. So I'm sorry for neglecting this in this episode, but I sincerely want to cover it later. Anyway... If you haven't listened to Strangers in China, Chapter 8, I suggest you go back and listen to it now. Uh, this episode is just kind of a follow-up of that episode. What you're hearing is Xi Jinping touring Wuhan, ground zero for the coronavirus. He's wearing a blue mask. He greets some people on the streets, and there are other people hanging out their windows to catch a glimpse of him. The coverage has some staged scenarios of him inspecting certain things and greeting groups of people. He video conferences with some patients that are still in the hospital but are recovering. This little tour of Wuhan was supposed to telegraph that Xi Jinping has this sense of humility and he's concerned for the people who have been most affected by this virus. He's showing us that he can step into the middle of the destruction, totally unafraid. On March 10th, Xi Jinping toured Wuhan. To everyone eagerly watching around the country, the message was clear. He was declaring victory over this disaster on behalf of the Chinese people. The question that remains to be answered, though, is, is this plague really over? Or are we just in the eye of the storm? Epilogue, in the wake of the plague. For those of you who didn't listen to Strangers in China, Chapter 8, you might want to go back and do that, just so you can get some context. Because I'm basically going to pick up right where I left off. So, let me get us on the same page as to what's happened over the past few weeks. Last episode, I described a doctor who shared some information about a new virus with some of his colleagues in a group chat in Wuhan. 
The next day, police came to his door and asked him to sign a release saying that he wouldn't disclose any more information about this virus. The virus in question was, of course, SARS-CoV-2, a virus in the same family as SARS. Only this virus was spreading a lot more easily. That was back on December 29th. His name was Li Wenliang, and on February 7th, he died of this virus, age 33. This sent shivers down everyone's spine here in China. It wasn't long after that that cases erupted. My friend Lily describes it really well. At the very beginning, the first thing every morning I would do was to check the news to see the confirmed patients and also the suspected patients number. That period was like going on a downward spiral emotionally, um, seeing the number was like so big and you also know the reality could even be worse. February 12th sticks out in my mind because that was the day that they started to count the number of cases diagnosed clinically. So not just the cases that they found through testing for the virus. There were suddenly 14,000 new cases of this virus in one day, bringing the total up to 60,000 or something. This was probably at the height of anxiety for all of us here in China. And then, like, if you hear a cough, you become very, like, frightened, paranoid. So during that state, and um, what I felt very strongly was a sense of, like, restlessness. Um, everyone was just ad addicted to their phones and tracking the same news, same numbers every day. It, it kind of heightened that sense of, anxiety or a sort of emptiness that you might feel on a normal day, but without it, without that, the fact that everyone's attention is on this scary thing, it might have not been that severe. As a society, like, it made us see how we react to things um, collectively, also um, individually. We ended up being stuck in our homes, going out as little as possible for basically a month and a half. This really put living situations to the test. Here's Mads, who lives in a classic Beijing hutong, which means he shares this tight little space and a courtyard with other families. I will never forget from the, the quarantine period is really um, getting uh, very close for uh, good and for bad to our neighbors and the other people in our hutong courtyard. Um, and I will say that there has been some clinches with some of the other people that, uh, that live here um, simply because we could, could feel the strain that uh, being inside had on everybody, both on us and also the other people uh, living here in, uh, in the courtyard. Me and Elizabeth have had to spend every waking hour together for the past 70 some odd days in our tiny two-room apartment. How, how long have we been together, like, nonstop? <laughs> I think it's been since January 22nd. It's now April 2nd. I don't know how many days it is. And how do you think you and I are doing? Fine. <laughs> I mean, like, probably we have fought less than we ever have in the past. Because we're just like, well, we're here. We can't fight. We've been able to, like, work through some things, you know. 
I I feel like if the listeners hear this, they're gonna think that like you're like, oh, we're doing fine. I feel like they're gonna think we're like breaking up or something. I think we're doing like really well considering the circumstances. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we're doing as well as we possibly can being locked inside the house like all the time. Like, I'm fine. You had to caveat it like that, didn't you? Considering you, all things considered. You were acting like a little gremlin yesterday. I was? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe we're not doing as well as I thought we were. No, I mean, we're good. Being together for an extended period of time can really put a lot of strain on relationships. Apparently, when local marriage registries reopened on March 1st, there was a rush of people coming through to apply for divorces. On a more serious note, it's been suggested that there's been this huge surge of domestic violence while people are locked down at home. I was really glad to have someone with me during this isolation period. The isolation for some people who are alone was totally unbearable. But boy, I, I can certainly feel the isolation from human interactions weighing on my mood. I can definitely feel more emotional surges in myself, both back when the situation in China was just absolutely terrifying, and now when it has escalated to a global crisis. Besides loneliness and anxiety, this period of crisis has done really strange things to our daily lives and routines. Here's Yashu. You heard her earlier. Um, like everyone else, I don't have the same routine anymore. I'm not going to an office and come back. I don't have work day and off work day. I still do, but the boundaries between normal routines are more, much more blurred. I think at first it felt kind of nice that you don't need to commute anymore and you don't need to waste so much time just going to a place. And uh, you kind of save some money by cooking home every day. But after a long time, you get a little tired of it and the fact that there's no clear boundary between the different things you do. Um, yeah, and that feeling that you're kind of free all the time to manage your own time, but you're actually not. My sense of time has totally changed. Days don't really fit neatly into the mold the way that they used to. I kind of work whenever, sleep whenever, never leave one space. And any given day just seems like a total eternity, and yet somehow the weeks fly by. The way that there's like lots of memes out there and the way that people are talking online, I don't know. I kind of expected this time to be like fun in a way, like a snow day or something where you can like bundle up and read and play video games. And yeah, there's this anxiety, but you know, you could just relax. But that really hasn't been the case. For a lot of us, we've been busier than ever. Lily's a teacher. And even though to this day, schools are still closed here in China. Lily has been busier than ever with online classes. So for February, it was actually the busiest time of my working life ever. I, I was giving classes every day. And when I was not giving classes, I was grading the homework and trying to write reports about them. It was really, really oh, just pushed my limit. 
Needless to say, our social lives have all but disappeared. Um, the, the, the social scene in Beijing, you can say it's uh, totally changed uh, because many people never made it uh, back to Beijing. So they're either back home or some other place. Um, many restaurants and um, and hubs for social life they remain closed, so uh, that means that it you, you can't just meet people ad hoc as you um, as 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 it used to be here in the city. This has been an especially trying time for expats living here because many of our friends have decided to leave. So social life, like everything else, has gone online. Some folks, like my friend Josh, have found creative ways to hang out with his friends. We did have to get a little bit creative about how to amuse ourselves. We had a few online parties where six or seven of us just turned on our webcams and played drinking games, which was a lot more fun than it had any right to be. And I think people are going to have a lot of special memories of this time, of ways that they found to connect with their friends or their loved ones in ways that they hadn't considered before. By the beginning of March, there were 80,000 cases in China. Most of them were in Wuhan, the epicenter of this crisis. But we'd already started to notice by mid to late February that something had shifted. The number of active cases had peaked. More and more patients began to recover, and fewer and fewer people were contracting the disease. On March 10th, Xi Jinping made his historic visit to Wuhan. And like magic, Shanghai started to come back to life. The Chinese president's visit to Wuhan was on a Tuesday. And by that weekend, when I was walking to go get some groceries, it was like just a perfect 65-degree day. Everyone was out and about. Cafes were full of people, and all the restaurants were open. Masks were definitely still on, but everybody wanted to take a victory lap. We have been having a new beginning. Things were going back to normal. Like on the surface, people started to go back to the parks, but not with a lot of density. Um, you don't see so many people, but gradually you could see uh, people going out. And also some businesses started to reopen, which is really a good sign. On March 19th, the news reported that there weren't any new cases that day. And just like that, it felt like it was all over. Shanghai, for a moment, felt like its old self. Things are getting back to normal. Um, sometimes when you walk outside, you even feel like everything's completely normal now, except everyone, literally everyone, is with a mask. Um, places are open, and there are more people working in office buildings. Yeah, so it's more normal. But even as there was this sense of comfort, everyone I talked to feels deeply skeptical about this sense of safety. People are still going out less, just like they should. And people are still wearing face masks. Just yesterday, for the first time, I saw someone on the street who was not wearing a face mask. And it made me unreasonably angry. Scratch that. It made me reasonably angry. Because even though there have been very, very few new cases here recently, this is exactly the time when I think that we might see a little bit of a resurgence. Not only because people are going back to work very soon, uh, and Qingming Festival is coming up in early April when a lot of people are going to go back to their hometown. There's going to be a lot of travel there. But also because people are feeling more comfortable. 
And the only way to prevent the spread of a disease that doesn't have a vaccine and that doesn't have a solid treatment is to get people to change their habits. And I think that people here are already feeling comfortable enough to fall back into their old habits. And that worries me a little bit. It's not like the crisis is over. I don't think so. And, um, but the tension is no longer there. We are, it's a little bit more relaxed and we were able to, we were able to get our back life back so we can enjoy our life, um, a bit more. I think how Peng expresses it here is a good representation overall of what the mood is like here in China. There is this seed of doubt, but things do feel a lot better. But China is not without new cases. Right now, most of the new cases reported in China are entrances from other countries. There's a new sort of narrative that the government is pushing, that all of the new cases are coming from outside of China. And, I mean, that's bullshit. There's been evidence that the Chinese government has been covering up the number of cases coming out of Wuhan to save face since they've decided to already declare victory over the virus. But in accordance with that false victory, the focus throughout March has been on how to contain the virus from the people coming from outside of China into China. So that means they've been quarantining all foreign arrivals. Anybody who's coming from outside of China into China immediately gets quarantined. My friend Mike is currently quarantined. Um, yeah, now that I am actually in quarantine, it's a bit boring, as you'd expect. Mike's American. And because there are basically no flights between China and the United States right now, Mike had to take this long, convoluted route to get back here. Once he arrived in Shanghai, he was carted away on this bus he was then shipped to this hotel on the edge of the city. This is a hotel that's been entirely set up just for people being quarantined. Mike's such a trooper. He's super, super upbeat about his experience, but it really sounds like hell to me. I'm in a nice enough business hotel near Hongqiao Airport. Uh, my third floor room has a big window. Uh, it doesn't have much of a view, but it gets good light. And so far we've had a, a few sunny days, so that's quite nice. Still, I'm taking vitamin D supplements in recognition of the fact that I'm certainly not getting enough sun exposure living as a shut-in. And aside from that, there are temperature checks twice a day uh, with lunch and dinner. And meal times in general are always something to look forward to here. And they're sort of an event, sort of like on a long flight. So I get whatever the hotel is serving for meals three times a day. But I am fine with that especially since these meals are included in the daily room rate, which is on the low end of the spectrum for quarantine hotels. I've heard rumors of some people, even though the official rate is supposed to be between 200 and 400, I've heard of some people paying up to 700, and I did not want to wind up paying that much, especially since I knew I would be paying for it myself out of pocket. Mike's one of the last foreigners that I know who could even get into the country. Now they've completely closed entry to anybody who's not from China. There's this xenophobic fear that foreigners are bringing the virus into the country. But according to what I've read, it seems that 90% of the cases brought into China from abroad at this point are Chinese nationals returning from overseas, not foreigners. 
So there's definitely been this shift on focusing on outsiders, people in other countries. And to that end, people in China are legitimately worried about the crisis outside of China. I wasn't at all expecting the coronavirus to become a pandemic as it is right now. And all the collateral damages so far induced are just heartbreaking. I, I've reached out to as many as I can, friends in the United States, Canada, and some other European countries to see whatever I could help with, such as precaution measures proven effective here in China and just helping to purchase masks to be shipped over from China. But like starting from yesterday, sometime after midnight, my doctor friend in the US reached out to me asking whether I know resources for purchasing N95 masks and coronavirus test kits because sadly hospitals in New York are running out soon. This is a very worrying situation and I've just been trying my very best to connect them with reliable certified suppliers I could find and I'm still working on it. There are shipments of doctors from China going to places like Italy and New York. For many here in China, this is really a moment of new clarity of how interconnected the whole world is with China. And with that, there's a new and deeper focus on some of the negative ways in which countries interact with each other. So it it kind of really pisses me off when under this circumstances, Donald Trump still just kept calling the virus Chinese virus and caused unnecessary violence in other racist actions against Asian people. This is just absolutely mind-blowing. Every single person I talk to for this episode is infuriated by the way that Donald Trump talks about this virus, referring to it as the Chinese virus. I think as an American, I see a lot of the stuff that Trump says as we shouldn't take this too seriously. But people around the world listen and they remember. If you don't think that there's any effect here, consider the fact that in the midst of all this, due to another one of Trump's stupid policies, journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal were unceremoniously deported amidst this crisis. These are some of the major publications who first informed the rest of the world about the virus in the first place. The kind of language that Trump uses emboldens the Chinese government's jingoistic policies around the world and reduces cooperation. Cooperation amongst countries in pandemics is crucial. This is just not the time to fuck around. To be clear, it's not just Trump's language that's problematic. The Chinese Communist Party is is spreading misinformation about the origin of the virus. Josh is talking about this foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Lijian, who claimed that the virus didn't originate in China, which is a blatant lie. But this is a narrative that the government has started to get behind. And that translates to a lot of people online responding with ugly vitriol. And I'm sure a lot of people in the States have seen videos or seen reports of people being very racist to any Asian they see in public, yelling things like coronavirus at them or refusing to serve them, et cetera, et cetera. But what I've seen a lot of here on the internet in China is people taking these videos and elaborating on them. A few days ago, a friend of mine who was from Beijing sent me a video done by a Chinese guy. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. But he had taken footage of a Chinese person being harassed, supposedly in New York City. 
and used it as a jumping off point for saying literally all throughout New York and all throughout the USA, people are turning their hatred towards Chinese people. And he had spliced in some footage of riots, which I haven't been in New York in a while, so I don't know if there are actual race riots going on there, but I severely doubt it. But some people are absolutely pouncing on these to create grassroots narratives of hate that are circulating online. And it seems extreme, but I'm keeping an eye on these things because this is something that might come back at me as a foreigner in China. Now, this is not the mainstream view right now. And in fact, when my friend sent me that video, she sent it to me to say, can you believe people are making videos like this? I can't believe it. I, I, I can't stand this sort of thing. But they are being made. And that sort of sentiment is not being discouraged by, as far as I can tell, the government of the USA or of China. Although obviously there aren't race riots happening in the United States where Asians are being targeted, there have been attacks on Chinese people living in the States and Asians more broadly. My friend Shun Yao has been in the US for the past three months and she's faced ugliness while walking the streets of New York City with a surgical mask on. She has started a support group for Chinese folks living in the US who are dealing with all of this fear right now. And I heard this one um, cases of, uh, of one of the friends um, participating to the, the support group. She said her friend from her university went to have lunch at Wendy's around campus. She was wearing a mask and she just went to the restaurant. And before she even into Wendy's, she got attacked by people on the street um, just kind of um, hitting her on her head and shouting her like, what are you doing here? You're um, Asian something something, bring on this coronavirus thing. She was attacked because she was Asian, she is Asian, and she was wearing a mask. I feel so deeply saddened by how racist Americans can be especially considering how kind all of my Chinese neighbors and strangers have been to me throughout all of this. I also just want to stress to Americans out there, Asians wear masks. And during this pandemic, you probably should too. Even the CDC now has come around on this idea that people should be wearing masks. And they're considering adding this to guidelines for people around the country. So in China, we seem to have landed in a time of relative calm. And that's due to the extreme and somewhat draconian quarantining measures that have been adopted. I wanted to ask these folks who've lived through these measures how they feel about how the government handled this. Before we talk about what was effective, I think it's important to point out that initially this virus was handled poorly. As we explored in the previous episode, Whistleblowers like Li Wenliang were silenced and the government took too long to inform the public. This initial poor response led to the government having to take drastic measures. To try to control the virus, they did things like closing off Wuhan and they basically put the entire country under lockdown. That being said, China has squashed the curve and things have calmed down here. The draconian measures that they took worked. I think Lily represents how people are really feeling right now. Glad that the government got it under control, but skeptical about how they handled it initially. 
Um, now looking back at the response to the virus, I would say it's quite effective uh, inside China because the expectation was in May everything would go back to normal. But right now it's the end of March and people are having confidence about resuming their ordinary life, which is really a good sign. Um, however, inside China, it could be more effective when the virus was first noticed uh, because if information could be more transparent and shared among the medical staff, I felt more loss, like some loss could have been avoided. This may seem like an insensitive response now that we see how the world has suffered from China's mistakes. But I think this is progress in a certain way. The current narrative that the government is trying to portray is total victory over this disease. They are trying to muddy the waters about who's to blame. But many people are skeptical of these totalizing narratives because they've seen how this plague has played out. We'll talk about some of the negative aspects of the response to this virus in China. But let's talk about the ways that China, not just the government, but China as a whole, responded well to this virus. Because I think the world can learn a lot from this response. Everyone has acknowledged the bravery of medical workers, doctors and nurses, who have risked their lives and worked themselves so hard that they quite literally have broken out in rashes. But there are people in the medical field who aren't on the front lines. Shun Yao, who's a medical researcher and total skeptic when it comes to the Chinese government, was impressed with Chinese medical science. They have been doing very good job in overall in isolate the virus, sequencing its genome, and, well, uh, upon some nudging from their international peers to publish the genome sequence. I would say Chinese scientists have been performing at a very high level. Um, it's a world-class performance in that regard. And they have been also receiving a lot of recognition and even compliments in that regard um, from their peer scientists uh, widely. But what about the structured quarantine? Did that work well? I think on a community level, Yashu describes how things worked out really, really well. I think from what I see, it's pretty effective. I think the Chinese government definitely took a lot of effort to control the situation. And I felt, it, I felt it a lot when I just came back to Shanghai like a month ago. I was in Hunan with my um, grandparents and some relatives for the new year. And when I came back, immediately I had to go to register in the neighborhood. And the police even called me to make sure I wasn't swindled by some mask cells, some fake mask cells online. And um, they also had everyone like download an app and then register and then whenever you go into a building or some place they can scan your code or something like that so they definitely try to keep control of the situation once the chinese government decided it was going to take this seriously the level of infrastructure wielded so quickly was astonishing there was so much that went into every level of response on every level of society. Tech was implemented, as Yashu said here. Legions of police officers' roles turned into upholding new quarantine laws. Volunteers were set out at each gate 
of every single community to track the flow of people in and out and take people's temperatures. I've been added to like a, a neighborhood WeChat where they gather together like over 200 people in this area and um, the neighborhood leaders or staff members, they send notices every day about what's going on. They even organize some activities or lectures through WeChat just by sending voice messages um, to tell people what to do and how to take care of themselves. Um, another interesting thing is a few weeks ago, they started asking people to report their temperatures twice a day. And I do see people sending like just their temperatures into the group chat every day. Not everyone does, like I haven't done it at all, but it, it's interesting. There are all these things they're doing to, they're staying very active. Um, and it's good that they um, take caution over the issue. This is the thing about China and government overreach into every aspect of your life. In normal circumstances, the neighborhood cadres and volunteers are these tedious and overly invasive folks who are essentially just foot soldiers for CCP propaganda. But during this crisis, they are incredibly valuable. First of all, as Yashu describes, they keep their communities calm and informed so that there isn't really any panic. In a sort of medical sense, they act as a point of initial triage, taking temperatures and assessing if someone's sick. These people are people who have risked their lives dropping off food for sick people quarantined in their homes. They've provided comfort to the community. They've checked in with the elderly. In this context, they're heroes. But altogether, I think that the response to the virus, in Shanghai anyway, has been very, very effective. These days, I still have my temperature checked. Anytime I go into a housing complex or a restaurant or any large building, someone checks to make sure I don't have a fever. And if I did have a fever or I did feel ill or if I did think that I had contact with someone who had the coronavirus, I could get tested almost immediately. There are fever clinics attached to attached to hospitals all over the place here whose main job is to do pretty much the only thing we can do and the most effective thing we could possibly be doing, which is to be testing people and making sure we know who has this and who hasn't so they can do the hard work of keeping those people separated. And I think that that has been very, very effective. A little bit delayed in implementation, but uh, I mean, the numbers in Shanghai speak for themselves. It's a city that's much, much, much bigger than New York. And it's much closer to the center of the outbreak than New York. But we've had so fewer cases because of the local awareness, which lets people change their habits in an effective way, and because of the availability of testing and the urgency that we feel behind that. Yeah, that's a really huge takeaway here. The virus epicenter is pretty close to Shanghai, and we've only had a few hundred cases total. The disease, for the most part, was concentrated heavily in Hubei and Wuhan, so in that sense, the response has been effective. It was contained. But we're all still very skeptical. Things don't really feel like they've fully shaken out. So the question for me is not really how effective was the response inside of China. I think the more interesting question is, was it a humane response and was it a transparent response? And I don't know to what extent either of those are true. And I think we're going to have a few more surprises in the coming weeks when more stories of what has been going on in Wuhan start to come out. And when the virus itself begins to seem like less of a threat than people who have newfound, I don't want to say resentment, but newfound misgivings about uh, about leadership will 
be free to start putting their energies into working for change in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's going to be a very, very fraught process, but I think it's inevitable, and I'm very curious to see what form it takes. There are a lot of things that went wrong here that need to be addressed. There were measures that were done right, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Shun Yao, a medical researcher, sees that there are huge problems with the way things are reported through the Chinese CDC. I don't see CDC doing a very good job, meaning any healthcare giver on the first level, if they detect any disease on a list of mandatory um, report disease, they have to file a report. And people at the very top of the system can receive this notice right away. But the system doesn't really have a decision-making capacity in terms of um, informing the public about this. So what we see happen is that obviously the system has to know about the um, unknown pneumonia happening in Wuhan back in December. But it turned out people in the system doesn't really have the uh, authority to inform the public. Um, hence the whistleblower, which includes Dr. Li Guanliang, and the system, the CDC system, I'm still talking about CDC system, doesn't have the capacity to really communicate clearly how um, risky or this virus is. The extent of lack of communication was so bizarre and so, I would say, embarrassing on the Chinese CDC website compared to what I found in Taiwan and Hong Kong CC website. The upshot here is that there are no independent agencies in China. All decisions, whether to report things to the public, go through higher authorities, which means that politicians get to decide whether the threat of a virus is real rather than the experts. In chapter eight, we talked a lot about how China learned a lot from its experience fighting SARS back in 2003. But in some of the most critical areas in healthcare, China still lacked the capacity to handle an outbreak this big. After 17 years of SARS outbreak in China and two rounds of medical reform, we still don't have a very good primary healthcare system, which has been laid bare during this crisis. We lack in terms of numbers of healthcare professional in that level, and also the number of good healthcare professional in terms of like their expertise and, and training. You would expect a, still a developing country like China we would have um, a lot of emphasis on communal disease and specific for infectious disease, which was not the case. And during this crisis, the system is just overburdened with um, people coming to the hospital. The problem of capacity of medical facilities being too low is compounded by distrust in the system. I think another key issue during the crisis is the lack of trust. People rush to their nearby hospitals when they have symptoms or flu-like symptoms. Um, even 
when they were advised not to do so. And I think in retrospect, a lot of people got infected with the COVID nineteen during this chaotic situation、um, in the waiting room in those、um, hospitals and clinics. And you can see healthcare professionals are swarmed with all this, like people coming in for help at the same time, and they were not able to do proper、uh, triage and then focusing on the case that need their help most. Shunyao was telling me that if you lived in Wuhan and were having a heart attack or a problem with your pregnancy or a stroke, all emergency services were severely delayed. There were far more victims than the numbers suggest. People could only get emergency services, and even those were delayed. You can definitely、um, lay heavy on how marvelous it is for the government to build two hospitals with like two thousand five hundred beds each. In within seven to ten days, you can marvel at oh how quickly together、um, you change a gymnasium into a, no an international conference center into a five thousand bed on quarantine facility. But isn't that the government's fault that this outbreak turned to crisis in the first place? If we do have a very good like public communication plan. The the discontentment plan, we don't need to deal with this at all. So when I saw those news about the government bragging、um, this to- total triumph as an example of the advantage of socialism with Chinese characteristics and under the leadership of CCP, I find it totally disgusting. So we've been through this, or, or maybe I should say we're still in the midst of all of this. But things have leveled out. People have been doing a lot of reflection about what this time has meant to them. The feeling for me is that it's just hard to make sense of any of this, especially as the rest of the world is ravaged by this disease. The impact, economically, socially, internationally, has not become completely clear yet. But through what we've seen so far, we have learned things. I think that、uh, a thing that we have all had to do is really get used to living in a certain a certain period of time with uncertainty and dealing with uncertainty and the circumstances of your life changing every day.、Uh, it has taught me something about my how I act under. Very、um, uncertain circumstances. Uncertainty is just something you have to get comfortable with. And in that same vein, decisions have to be made, and then decisions have to be lived with. Like decisions are not usually easy for me. I struggle over them. And with this saying,、um, the virus, everything is constantly changing, and your decisions have to be affected by your company's decisions, the government's decisions, every city's decisions. It was. 
a little bit of a struggle. And afterwards, when I talked to other people, I realized a lot of people have struggled over similar decisions: where to go, whether to go, and what to do.、Um, and when I think back to those moments and seeing how things are going now, I think, well, you never know what's the right decision.、Um, but one thing to do might be just. Just do the sensible and responsible thing because things are always changing, and if we just decide as a response to our current state or want to run away from something or run away from a state of mind that's not really pleasant, then maybe things change later and you regret. So it's hard, but I think just stay calm and stay where you are and see how things. Go and don't react to them too quickly. This pandemic has revealed a lot about the world and how it's all interconnected.、Mm, this is the first time I felt there was、um, issue for the whole world to react to, and seeing the government's speed to take actions and also the different measures they will take is making me to see more of a country. And also,、um, I think the relationship between different nations were revealed in this time. Prior to the pandemic, the relationship between the U.S. and China was already pretty shaky, but now clear divisions are obvious to everyone.、Um, and there's one thing which I was quite、um, unhappy about when Donald Trump. Uh, using Chinese virus on Twitter, I felt everybody has a choice, and he deliberately chose this word over coronavirus because he has some hidden intention. And during this time, I feel more people are taking sides. Like in peaceful times, you can always sit on the fence and you can remain silent, but right now the netizens. They start to show their inclination, say,、uh, no matter in America or in China. In thinking about this, Pang has seen the response to this virus through a cultural lens. He sees his culture as just being better at taking collective action against something so big. And I also learn、um, the different mentality of Chinese people and people from other. Countries like Europe or America, I realize that a lot of American people or European people they feel reluctant to put on masks when they're healthy, and I think that's something、um, that shows a very、uh, big difference between the mentality of Chinese people and Western people. Is we always think of ourselves in subjective terms. We think of ourselves as me. And then maybe、um, Western people think more、um, of themselves as I. So when they don't have any disease, when they're perfectly healthy, they think I'm not going to do that, and I have the freedom to do that. You cannot stop me. You cannot force me to wear masks. But Chinese people, since we have、um, maybe we have、uh, a more collective, a bigger collective identity. We think more of ourselves、um, in relations to other people, and then not saying that we really care more for other people. I think that's、um, arguable, but I think we're more aware of the fact that we may be affected by other people. We may be infected, 
And that really helps a lot of ch Chinese people. If you go on the street of Shanghai, everyone's wearing a mask, even um, like beggars, they're wearing masks. We believe that the world is not made for us, it's made for everyone, and we have to, you know, um, think reflectively. We have to always be aware of our limitations. And, you know, when I was in America, I realized deep down a lot of people are really kind and innocent, and um, they probably bet too much on the goodwill of other people, of those people who are infected to be, you know, to go to the hospital directly. Or they're, I don't like to say that, but they're betting too much on the goodwill of fate. In both the Chinese government and the American government's response to this, they forgot the lesson that Josh learned, that we all need to learn. I think that one of the biggest takeaways from this, not only for people in China, but maybe even especially for people in the USA or in the West, is that you got to listen to experts and you got to make sure that whoever is in charge of organizing your community or your country are paying attention to experts and not just sort of going off the cuff. Well before Americans started feeling worried about how far the virus has spread throughout America, I was already very, very confident that the virus was everywhere already in the USA. And you only need two pieces of information to figure that out for yourself. One is that on average, each infected person is going to infect uh, two to three other people. That's how contagious the disease is. And the other piece of information is that the incubation period can be as long as 10 to 14 days. And when you have that information, you know that this is a virus that spreads very quickly and silently. And now as the number of confirmed cases in the USA is going up and up, that's partially due to contagion. But obviously there have been cases all over the world for weeks now that we just haven't been looking for, and we haven't been putting resources into raising awareness and to testing. These are all things that we should have known, and we should have known them because epidemiologists, the people who are trained to do this, have been telling us this for a long time. But on the flip side of that, what has really impressed me and what really scares me is how truly strong our normalcy bias is. We want to believe that our lives won't change in any fundamental way. And we have a bias against believing in the information that tells us that there will be a fundamental change. So um, just a quick update, actually. Um, there were three days at the end of March where data wasn't coming out at all about the virus here in China, about the number of cases and about uh, the number of deaths. All of this comes in the midst of reports that China has been concealing and undercounting cases. And um, it wasn't until a few days ago that they began to count asymptomatic cases. So all of this may not be over at all. So last episode, I focused a good deal on my feelings about the virus, and I guess I should follow up on that. Putting together this epilogue episode about the virus was really hard for me, honestly. I'm glad I have these people to share their wisdom, because honestly, I don't have much left to offer. I'm pretty spent. It's weird. As someone who's prone to depression, as someone who's overly emotional, 
I've been surprisingly resilient in facing the onslaught of anxiety, fear, and disappointment. And I've adapted to the daily inconveniences of washing and cleaning and staying at home pretty well. And I don't really know why that is. I just felt like I had to step up and be strong. But I'm just really tired now. Before all of this, I was usually really, really social. But something about stealing myself for this virus has made me really distant from the people I care about. I think it has a lot to do with the virus really hitting the U.S. All of this feels very heavy to me now. I guess I'll just say this to all of you who may be at the start or right in the midst of the worst part of this virus. Just remember to stay home. Plan your weeks so you leave your house as little as possible. If you're an essential worker and you have to be out there so that other people can survive in their homes, just remember that you're risking your life and you're a hero and take as many precautions as you can to stay safe. Wash your hands and don't touch your face. Stay hydrated and get good rest. And most importantly, stay strong. You've been listening to Strangers in China. If you're feeling down and want to talk to somebody who's done a bunch of research on this and isn't too busy, you can email me at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. Also, feel free to send us a message on Twitter at Stranger in China or on Facebook at Strangers in China. We're also on Instagram at Strangers in China. This podcast was mastered by Kaiser Kuo. Research help from Shunyao. Season two of Strangers in China will be coming this fall, and I hope for my own mental health, it won't all have to be related to the coronavirus. Our theme song is Analytical Skeletons by Caesus. Other music in this episode was by Purple Cat, Jack Major, Terry Skills, Artist Unknown 2, Caesus, Lofi, Saved Bitch, and JMC. I want to dedicate this episode to my Papa Grant, who encouraged me to pursue this podcasting dream.